Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number seven with your hosts, Mark Savatsky with Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And we're here today with our guest, Matt Edlin, Girding Edlin. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Matt just raced over and an Uber landed in Logan less than an hour ago. Welcome. And, uh, yeah. hey, thanks, guys. Yeah. Welcome back to Boston. Matt, your company has done 319A Street, followed by the Troy, followed by the Eddy, and that is just your Boston portfolio. You guys build all over the country, and we're really excited to have you joining us today. I think one theme that I can pick up on some of the projects you've done locally is that you're sort of always a step ahead of the gang and the rest of the crowd. Certainly the case with 319A, Fort Point Channel, and the Seaport blew up thereafter. Same goes for Eddie and the Troy. So uh, thanks again for being here, and uh, we'll get right into it. Of course. So Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the company? When was it founded? What do you guys focus on? What's your role there? Good question. The company was founded in 1996. My father, Mark Edlin, and his business partner, Bob Girding, started in our basement. My father, he, he retired light. In fact, he, he did intimate to me the other day that he's like, I'm not, don't tell your mom I'm not retiring ever. Um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully she doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, our co managing partner, he was in, I think, his early 20s. He was brought on because they had never, they needed to, to build a computer database of every office building in Portland. He has been there since then. He used to play. I, this is Kelly Saito, uh, who I get to work with every day. Uh, I think I was five years old. He was playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with me in the basement as they were founding this company. And we've grown out of the basement. But I think the, the sentiment around uh, what we started as and where we are today was always, uh, was always about seeking new opportunity. It was always about challenging ourselves and really... Just, uh, I like to say, we threw the ball down the field and hope to God we could catch it. Like, that's <laughs> always been our mentality. We really don't say no to opportunity. And we believe that in almost all cases, we can make it happen. So started in the basement, I'd say, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, we were, were awarded a deal that it was a lot bigger than anything we'd ever done. Uh, it's called the Brewery Blocks in Portland, Oregon. So How, how big was it? It was five city blocks. with Whoa. An, yeah. Do you ever um, feel like it's like the dog chasing the car? Oh, it's 100%. And all of a sudden the dog oh, catches no. the car and you go, oh, damn. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it's 100% like that. In this deal, it was, uh, it was a combination of preservation. There was a combination of new development. There was a combination of exploratory urbanism, of expansion of, our, of, of public transportation systems, et cetera, et cetera. That project had the first lead gold residential ever done in the country, the first lead platinum residential ever done in the country, the first lead platinum on the National Historic Registry, the first lead, I mean, it was like this culmination of firsts and this exploration of what it means to infuse sustainability, not just from the, from the built environment, from, but from a lifestyle perspective, into this kind of microcosmic section of Portland. Um, and West Coast, of course, it's a very, it's, it was kind of part and parcel with the culture. It's interesting because aside from being a notary public, I'm also a lead accredited professional. Oh, wow. So, Both of which go hand in hand. Yeah, very, yeah. very much so. Yeah. I think those are, those, are, those are great skills to marry. In up. fact, we actually, I think we have some documents for you to notarize tonight. Oh, terrific. Are they, are they lead, yeah, lead, lead related? Lead I think that certified. Be... But it brings to the question of, as developers, we talked last episode, where do you employ your dollars and how do you make sure that every dollar you employ returns a dollar fifty back? So it's always interesting and um, it seems like you definitely believe and maybe it's just part of your mission and it's not even is important to get the dollar fifty. It's just part of who you are. Am I correct in saying that? I like to say that green was a color in your Crayola box. It wasn't. It wasn't the. It wasn't the. You know the the environmental social movement that it is today. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't done. And in fact, if anything, the behemoth wasn't actually accomplishing the built environment in a way that performed substantially better than baseline code. It was, in, it was in convincing our equity and debt partners that this was not just an addition to the project we were building, that this would have actual economic benefit to the project. And I think that in some ways, it was kind of a perfect culmination of timing, market in particular. I mean, Portland, Oregon is, again, they get it. Did you guys watch Portlandia? No. <laughs> I tried. I don't watch it. Because it's a documentary uh, for us in Portland. You just walk outside and there you go. It's pretty, I mean, I, I have the four-way stop. I've gone. I know my chicken's name I had last night. Absolutely 100%. But Portland, Portlanders get it. I mean, that, that, like, that is, it is a documentary in so, in so many ways because there's just this, there's a, 
odd consciousness out there. So what was the largest project you had done prior to that? Because you because you said the, the you founded the company in 96, and in 98 you had a five-city block project. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, I think maybe a large office development and that we had done. how was this awarded? It was an RFP process? It was, yeah. So the, it was the old Blitz Weinhardt Brewery. Nobody lived in downtown Portland, though, really. like This was like the start of like our reurbanization for downtown. And now you have... I think the pipeline over the next few years is like 19,000 units. Was it a, a mixed-use project in terms of did you sell part of it? Did you rent part of it? Do you, do you still own part of it? We don't. We did sell it, and there, that was the launch into where we are today. I think that we had pre-sold every single condominium prior to it opening. The lease-up took about half of the projected time. The majority of the retail was pre-leased before we were done. And the office building, I mean, the office rents, I think, by the time we were done, were the highest in the city. We got a wonderfully attractive offer. It was north of 30% IRR. It was the most mixed-use project I've ever had the opportunity to be involved with. You're used to doing office spaces, something that you've just done sort of rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. You're pro forma at that point, probably just you fill in a couple inputs, you sort of know where they're going to fall. How do you go from doing that cookie-cutter, cut-paste projects and then jump into something so different. How do you even underwrite something like that? Yeah, I mean, I just wouldn't have a spreadsheet that can, it's like putting a circle in a square to me, but you guys put a big bet down and... I think that's it. I mean, I think there's a certain point where we had an expertise in construction and so we were able to deliver on time. Did we experiment with things that totally epically failed? Yeah, it was the first time we'd ever done a green roof, which by today's standards seems totally normal. Yeah, that thing died in like two seconds, so we had to replant the thing. Um, but the success of that gave so much credit and so much credence to urban infill sustainable real estate that we went on from there to do a 20-block master plan that basically expanded the city by at least 20% down south of Portland with the second inner city aerial tram, which connected our largest teaching hospital down to this new neighborhood. What year was this? Well, it's coming on the heels, so probably yeah, right around 2008, which is when I joined the firm. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> Perfect oh, yeah. timing. No, I spent most of my, like I spent for like in college, I come back and I'd schlep condos down there. So I got like, I mean, I was in it. And then, I, I meant with the uh, market changing significantly yeah. in that time period. Yeah, no, it was, did the, it was did the project take a pause? It was always intended to be a 20-year project. And so, you know, we had gone through and cleaned up. It was a big brownfield site, so we cleaned that up. And there were parcels that had gone off to other folks, and, and we were there to kind of help guide the infrastructure master plan. It again connected and, and expanded our public transit system. Did you guys pursue tax credits for the brownfield redevelopment work? We pres- I mean, the capital stack was... Enormous. Can, you, can um, you explain that a little bit? Just what does your typical capital stack look like? What does that term mean? And then also, how does how does the tax credits play in? And what type? Of, let's start there. So sources. I mean, that's that's really your 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 debt and equity structure. I, so I was not again, like I said, I was a pup when this was all happening. So in 2009, we went out to pitch our first fund. We were the only new fund in the United States to have a closing in 2009, and a lot of that was predicated on the fact that. The 20-block master plan project, that spurred projects in L.A. We did the first two brand-new condominiums in downtown L.A. in like 30 years. We built a massive tower in Bellevue, which is beautiful. It was also hit during the time, so things got fun. Our early adopters, which a lot of those were Taft-Hartleys, who said, you know, we're going to invest our money with you. We are going to get our guys back to work. So we focused our we focused our strategy around. So these are union pension funds. Un, yep, union pension funds. Projects. Focusing on so we focused on on major gateway cities, particularly coastal. Although we've expanded into uh, Chicago as well. How did you initially pitch these funds to to invest with you guys? PowerPoint one by <laughs> <laughs> one slide one by one. So so we brought on a woman Molly Bordenaro, who is a fantastically talented individual. She had just left her post as the ambassador to Malta under George Bush and had walked into... It's it, the second George Bush reference I, on this podcast. I, it is the second George Bush reference. I think you used the... Uh, it wasn't was Mission Accomplished, but you used something like the that. The Decider. Yeah, The Decider. Uh, the decider. Was, that, was that intentional? <laughs> there you go. Um, 
No, that wasn't intentional, but she, no, that's, that's where she came from. And um, her family has a, uh, has a background in commercial real estate. Her relationships, certainly coming out of Washington, was, were very beneficial for us getting the door. And, and quite frankly, are a lot of the projects, by a desire to really make sure that the people working on our jobs are, are getting living wages, we were kind of very, very close with union labor, especially in and around Portland, L.A., uh, Seattle. So it's safe to say these projects were built 100% union? 100% union, absolutely. What do you offer your investors? So that's a, good, that's a good question. So these were value-add pension funds that had a seven-year closed end, so return of capital within seven years with opportunity to extend for a year if you need to. And I think at the time, value-add returns on an IRR basis were somewhere in the, I'd say, mid-teens. So 14 net, 15, 16 gross. Call us next time you're looking for capital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like hard money costs. And I will tell you, since then, I mean, that was 2009, it's 2019, so 10 years, the expectations have changed so much. You know, as the market has grown and it's then gotten frothy and it's gotten, you know, it's all over the place. Um, so where is it now? Is it more expensive to, to borrow $200 million? No, because it's all about expectation, right? And today's investor, you'd be hard pressed to assume you could make better than on the kind of project we're doing. Realistically, a gross 14, 15 and net 12, 13. Can you uh, break down IRR just for all the listeners on the podcast? Just what is it high level? It's a metric of return based upon time. Time. Exactly. Internal rate, rate of, of return. return. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. That there you go. Great Excel formula. <laughs> it is. Still don't know what it means. <laughs> a lot of our funds are RIR driven. They and 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 time is actually a challenge for us. A lot of these investors are tax sensitive. And so they don't want to fall under an unrelated business tax. Oh, UBIT will kill you. It it will kill I you. I don't know what that is. In order to protect their tax-exempt status, we have to hold for a certain period of time. So typically we hold, I think the shortest uh, we can get away with is like 18 months after we've stabilized. How many funds do you have currently and how much capital have you raised to this date? So we have raised somewhere around $1.5 We're on fund four. We just had our first uh, closing in December, January. I think there was a, a couple little pieces that were coming back in. That's what I do. My job is to find deals. I run East Coast and Midwest, so I run all up and down the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, we're actively looking in D.C., in New York, in Boston for sure. Boston being, I would argue, one of the best cities in the world to do what we do, and Chicago as well. You're not just uh, giving us a compliment. I'm you mean 100% it. Why? Not. Why? The market fundamentals are you have coverage over almost every single demand driver and industry you could think of. And I think this goes back to like your conversation earlier with Mark about permitting. I mean, one of the things why this is, a, this is a market that we love is because it's so challenging. We like the challenge. It's a hard place to do business and you've got everything going for it. I mean, if you, and if one of those industries, eds, meds, tech, pick one, you know, financial services, pick one. If one of them goes under, it's it's not one dimensional. It's not yeah. one dimensional. Back in the day when we were a, you know, a one-off developer, as you guys know, you know, you find the deal, you got to raise, you know, if you don't have the equity there, you got to raise the equity, you got to, you know, go out for the debt. Sometimes you don't have enough equity, so you got to get a mez. I mean, there's, there are so many aspects of, of trying to get enough cobbled together dollars to make the project work and the right dollars too. Uh, we've got a public-private partnership arm. It's a really important piece of what we do. It's really focused on affordable housing. It's focused on working with groups uh, like a group in Portland called Central City Concern. We built uh, housing for at-risk mothers for drug and alcohol dependency, both inpatient short-term treatment and long-term housing. To do a deal like that includes everything from new market tax credits to grants from the city to the endowment of the organization. I mean, there's so many elements of it then add up to the full dollar amount that it takes to get it done. And each one is has implications around reporting and return percentages and all these other things. And so when you get into those types of deals, it just the complexity of, of making those happen, it just takes a lot. So are you doing those projects out of the greatness of your heart? Are you doing it for those projects for profit? It's the right thing to do. And, and in a place that you call... You're still um, making money, though, on those projects. You're well, that was my question. Are you, are you making, we are, we are. But it's even. not. I mean, it's not but, by comparison to a project that we're, you know, a fun project, it's, it's nothing. Are they less risky, perhaps? You, your return isn't as great, but... Absolutely, they are. 
And in some cases, you know, we're putting in. Uh, Are you allowed to get more density out of those projects? Do you see the approvals process move I would more say, quickly? I would say this. I'd say the the benefit beyond it being just the right thing to do is in in your backyard, in your community, in a place that you are investing in. It has a big impact on your ability to do other things as well. I mean, it Got has it. it garners political will. I mean, we we have actively here been pursuing opportunities like this. This is like a second home to us now. I mean, I've literally been flying out here every single week for 10 years. And this is a place where we need to be giving back. That's why this motivation is is so, not just the right thing to do now, I think it's, it's like, it has to be done. But in, in all aspects, it, it's a big piece. And it's a big piece that is, has allowed us to develop the relationships that we've needed to here in order to be able to accomplish the projects we've gotten done today. So one would say that by being so successful doing all of the, we'll call them for-profit developments, right? With the, the city blocks and having a very successful track record, it's allowing you the ability to do these other projects for the goodwill of the communities. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say that it affords us the opportunity to be able to give back. Can we jump down into a little bit more micro topics? Of course. So the biggest question we get is what does it cost to build And I think Dan, Ray, and I are very qualified to answer that on a certain level of rehab or new build. You're doing 100% union projects all over the country. Can you give us a concept for what your price per square foot ranges are, or if it's price per unit, whatever your metric is your? So just on a hard cost basis. So actually, I prepared coming into this and looked at- You talked to Kelly? Not not to Kelly. I looked at at old- uh, GMPs of all the projects we've done here in Boston. And it's GMP being a gross guaranteed, guaranteed maximum, maximum price. price. Yeah, exactly. So, nice. This is our bill. Yeah. This is the this is what our contractor has uh, has has told us this is what's gonna cost, and we've locked in the contract. Wow. Love um, to get that with our guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, put it this way, it's still a still a floating still a high yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a moving target. To change orders. It's a range. Yeah. And like right now we're building a project called Fenway Center. And I was, for those who aren't familiar, this is a project with air rights over the Massachusetts yeah. Turnpike. Yeah, yeah, we um, and I bemoan buying air rights over a city sidewalk yep. as being a complicated process. But we can go back into we'll that. go back into that in a bit. But I think today, and and um, we're working with um, we've done a lot of work with Suffolk. We're doing some work with JMA on this project. But I think we're in the like we're north of four hundred a foot, just hard cost. It's been a hundred dollar a foot spread between. 2012 and 2019, the change in pricing was is pretty astronomical. In fact, 315 on A when we built that in uh, Fort Point, we had designed it as almost every structure in Boston is done with structural steel. Structural steel, and uh, we were getting all the foundations done, and the price of steel went up 10 or 15 percent. It was some astronomical number. We had to redesign the entire structure for post tension concrete, which. First off, finding anyone to do post-tension in the city here is very, very Two difficult. Bitters. Yep, that's it. But it allowed us to stay within the price range that we were looking for. We're used to doing PT out on the West Coast and in the Midwest. And it allowed for a pretty awesome product, one where we could expose concrete and really give a loft feel. It was very different for Boston. Post-tension concrete is really cool. You take these uh, rods, think of like rebar within the slab, and you tension them just as it sounds. After um, after the concrete's cured? Uh, yes. You have these sleeves and you, you tension it. And in doing so, what it allows, one benefit is much thinner floor to floor. Yep. So you get better ceiling heights as, as one outcome. So yeah, the, t- the tension actually increases the strength of the concrete, right? Quick trivia note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Post-tension concrete is most prevalent in what city? Any guesses? Is it Chicago? Nope. New York? Nope. You've mentioned it today. LA? DC. DC. Oh. Because nothing can be taller than the Washington Monument in oh. DC. And, and therefore, you're always trying to get that last floor or that extra bit of ceiling height. So it's interesting in terms of construction types. We went on then after that to build Troy, Boston, which was right next to the old Herald. The Herald had, was still up when we transacted on the deal and we were designing it. And um, it was right next to the, a major interstate. Major interstate and the largest homeless shelter in the state of Massachusetts. All of which we kind of embraced as an awesome quality of the neighborhood and something that we could give back to and be part of. We did a lot of work with the homeless shelter, did a lot of work with improvements under the overpass in conjunction with National. Remember, we had just closed on the deal and I, and I 
was first introduced. It was the first time I was introduced to Jerry Foley down at Foley's. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I will not describe that night. Needless to say, though, we made fast friends with the Foley family. We, and we typically conclude episodes by asking, how can our guests get in touch with you? And they usually give email addresses. Yeah, you just meet me at Foley's. Just go to JJ Foley's. I will be there. Yeah, Pat will be pouring some whiskeys for us. Every project we've done, we've gone through an NPC. I know there's a project change. Here in Boston, you can administratively add more units. Um, and so we went back to add additional units to the project. We did the same thing with, with 315 on A. This assumes that you have gone through a BPDA process. Correct. You have approval from the board yep. to build what you will build. And you are just going to add units within the existing confines of the, sh- the structure that's approved. You're not adding height now. We aren't. And that's where it gets fun. We didn't change height, but we used a product called Girder Slab, which was coming out of uh, Pennsylvania. Instead of putting those in and then adding the top decking and then putting in concrete on top, this actually, it, it's a prefabricated concrete panel that sits within kind of the chamfers of the, of the steel. So the ceilings within the unit, if you're enjoying your living room and you look up, what you're seeing is literally the bottom side of the of Girder Slab system. Yep. Because the slab sits within the steel, you, you, you don't have that extra height. So we were saving, I think it was like, I can't remember how many inches it was a floor, enough so we got in an extra floor, two floors. So we went from, I think, like an approved like 220 units, like 273 units across the whole project. Did you have to go back to the community on something like that? When you go through the notice of project change process, there is a community appeal process. We didn't have to go back. We did, though. I mean, we spent a lot of time with the uh, Washington Gateways, the Main Street program there. We sp- I mean, shoot, we spend, in designing, we spend years in a neighborhood getting to know people like Jerry Foley, who, you know, we can laugh, it's an Irish pub, but Jerry knows the neighborhood better than anyone. Um, meeting old guys who worked at the Herald who were sitting there and learning stories about how they used to take the front page of the newspaper and they'd make them into these hats. And at the end of the day, they go in, they go to the bar, and he'd be late, you know. I Put it this way, there's a, there's a I think it stays a little open farther than the uh, blue laws would allow. But they would go in and they, and they, they would, you know, have a couple of drinks before they head home because they've been working all night. And they leave those hats on the, on the bar so that when the cops and the firemen who would come in there, they would have the front page of the paper. They could read the front page of the paper and sitting there just learning those stories and, and talking to the artists in that neighborhood and talking to the community leaders in the neighborhood, getting to understand and really involving them in the process, in the process of design and the process of conception. The neighborhood feels as much a part of what it means to create the building as our architects, as our GCs, as our, as our sub-consultants, as our engineers and, and designers of all different facets. You have a ton of passion. You, you seem to love what you're doing. Are you boots on the ground going to these neighborhood meetings and talking to these people? Or are you hiring attorneys? and arch- Obviously, you're hiring attorneys and architects, but are you yourself in the weeds with them? Absolutely. We're in the weeds with all of our designers and consultants. We all have an obligation to listen and respond as opposed to just assuming that we know the answer. Are you buying these projects contingent on stuff though? Or are you just buying a site for a couple hundred million dollars and just saying, oh, I hope I can put this here? In establishing ourselves here in Boston, all the projects that we bought to date have been fully entitled projects where we do have to go back through and do a notice of project change. We do a lot of interface with the city. So is that where you uncover additional value is you might be buying the permits, but you see something that you can tweak. So when we first came to Boston, we cold called Suffolk. We were looking for information on what it costs to build. Like that's, we just wanted to, I mean, you can't walk into a market unless you know kind of what it's going to cost. And we got a phone call back like within a day from John. No. John called back and so it was John Fish, the John, CEO. Yeah, John Fish, CEO of Suffolk, who has become a, a wonderful supporter. Did he a wonderful call friend. you at 5 a.m.? I imagine it was, I, I believe it was more like nine, but yeah, it was, it was, he was respectful of the West Coast. He is the most influential businessman in, in the state and 
maybe New England, and he's known for his early hours. He always tells his employees that you can take my parking spot, but you have to get to the office before me. <laughs> and that's kind of the running joke. <laughs> I have a father who's just like that. He's known for his generosity. And in this case, his willingness to take the time to have a conversation with us. And we had spent, and I had gone, we did the dog and pony in New York. We were looking around. This is like 2010, 2011. We were, we were, we were kicking the tires in New York and in DC. And then we got to Boston and we were like, this in so many ways feels like home. I mean, the irony that Portland, Oregon was named on a coin flip by a guy from Boston and a guy from Portland, Maine, we could have been Boston to Boston. I mean, it would have, that's, that, it would have been Boston, Oregon. Is that really how it was named? I swear to God. Wow. Yep. There's a little poetry in that. So it was between Portland and Boston, and they just flipped a coin. They're literally at a coin, <laughs> a coin flip. Um, this is the, these are the great minds coming up with unique names exact, across the country. Exactly. <laughs> what you, see, you know, when you discover like a whole other part of the of the United States, I think you know you got you got a lot of opportunity to to, to name things, and they wanted to plant the flag. So John Casino, look, if you want to do this, if you really want to make this happen, we got to go in and see. This is this was Mayor Menino at the time. We went to go in and, and meet with meet with the mayor. He sits down with us, and and uh, it, was, it was him and Kairos. Kairos Shen, who was the he was the chief architect of like the uh, he was head of planning and and a brilliant mind, and very very just very intense, very good guy, and and a wonderful supporter of ours. But Kairos looks at us and he goes, "Before we begin, I want to say I we know you." And we're like, "We're two guys from Portland, Oregon. Why is this? <laughs> why do you know us? We know you." Okay, yeah. I don't know what that means. When we were writing our planning docs, we were out in Portland going through your brewery block project and the, the design and engineering components, the urbanism that was created by that project, the way, the way streetscapes came together, the way gray space and interstitial space between these buildings were then taken up by just people walking around. We loved that. That's what we, we've incorporated. We incorporated that into the New York, the New York blocks, which is the, where Troy sits. We incorporated that into our planning documents. And we were sitting there going, okay. He's like, we really respect what you guys are doing. And that was the, that was the first foyer into Boston. We, we felt very blessed to be walking in. And, and my father has a phrase that I, I grew up with. I live by what goes around comes around. And there's a certain point where you do what you say, you follow through with it. That means a lot. And it means a lot in this town. It means a lot. No, Dan and I have had no less than at least two projects where we've gone to the community. We've said, this is what we're going to do, whether it's at the community meeting or through conversations with the neighbors while the project is going on. Hey, you know, the, this person, this other developer came through and they didn't plant some trees like they said they were going to, or they told me to, you know, go pound sand when I had a complaint. We've heard that and we emphasize for those folks making sure that we stay in communication with them and we make sure that if they have any concerns, we help address that right away. And it's a huge difference. And mm -hmm. we're not just trying to pat ourselves on the back, but because we know when we're going for the next project, you got to think they're going to remember you for what you did. And whether it's a small project, big project, they're going to remember you. And if you don't do what you say you're going to do, then you're just basically shooting yourself in the foot for the 100%. future. When we did the Eddie, I think the Eddie, this is our project in East Boston. And you want to talk about a neighborhood that is truly incredible. East Boston has been a unique experience for us. And I think when we first sat down with the neighborhood, one of the big things that was asked of us was, I don't want to feel like an outsider in my own neighborhood. I don't want to feel out of place in a place that I call home. And I think in many ways, so that project had a kind of a rough design, was previously entitled during the Municipal Harbor Plan. We went back in with a revised design that really kind of maintained the profile of the building. It shrunk the overall built square footage on the site and really put a lot of emphasis on the, on the Harbor Walk there. And at Harbor Walk, in conjunction with the park that was adjacent, we invested, I think, I want to say it was a couple hundred thousand dollars in, or it was like 150 and then we added another 50 because they were short on the park improvements that were happening there. We worked in conjunction with our landscape architect and the landscape architect for the park so that the park felt contiguous with the harbor walk that we were creating so that the park that people had known and been part of for years and years and years, it didn't feel like there were two separate spaces. It didn't feel like this is my spot and this is your spot. The public and private realm became blurred and became one. And you, to me, the success of that project was the day I stood after the fence came down and I watched people walking from that park and taking over the harbor walk as if it had been there for 50 years. That's awesome. So I'm a resident of East Boston, and I can definitely attest to that. 
was thinking we could hit two more topics and then jump into the lightning round or underrated, overrated, underrated, eh, appropriately rated. You build all over the country. So how does Boston rank amongst, you know, other major metropolitan cities in terms of, you know, how difficult it is to build? You know, I guess, can you just rank your top five? To build, to build, to permit. I mean, there's a lot of meat in that whole question. I would say that Boston's in the top category. I'd say Boston, San Francisco, and Chicago. But Chicago's interesting. So, like, I would say San Francisco, for all the reasons that have been mentioned on this show in the past, it's a, it is, I mean, you have, you have a law that basically allows anyone in the entire state of California to appeal. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, their cousin's brother's dog died on that spot. And then you'd be like, yeah, no, we don't we don't want to do this. Wow, forget a butters. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. yeah. Everyone's your a butter. Everyone is your a butter. Portland is incredibly easy. Seattle, I mean, it's a process, but it can be done within, you know, an eight to nine month range. And, and L.A.? You, L.A., L.A. Sim, I mean, L.A. is similar to, to San Francisco where you have the same kind of laws. I think there's more available land, so that makes it a little bit easier. Chicago is, is oh, I love Chicago. I love doing deals in Chicago uh, because they all, they all sound like the plot line of like a Sopranos episode. Um, I don't, I've, all, the, all the development deals we've done that have all been like, there was a steakhouse one night and a lot of whiskey. And, <laughs> and, and it left, ended up with this relationship that was formed. And we've done business with wonderful partners and wonderful people we've, we've been able to transact with. But every time it always sounds a little crazy. And then especially when you get into the politics. And I think it was mentioned on the show, the politics in Chicago, like it is real. And we, again, I, a testament to just doing what you say you're going to do. I remember the first time I go in. And I meet this is this is all this is Alderman Walter Burnett, who is a tenured alderman in, in Chicago. You got to go every different ward. You've got to go to the alderman. The mayor isn't a like you don't really go to the mayor for anything development related. You go to the alderman. And I go in and and he he he's just this squat African American, fifty he's in his fifties, sixties, but he's cut, he's fit, and on the wall he's got this poster of him in his boxing days. And I sit there, I'm sitting there with him, and he goes, hey. Before, you, before we start this conversation, I'm going to tell you, if you go against anything we agree on, I'm going to go around, I'm going to tell every single person, every alderman in this city that you are not to do business with this person, they will never be here. Okay. Uh, I, I, alderman, I, uh, I, uh, I appreciate that, actually. I, I, I would, yeah. I, I, and what happens if I do exactly what I say? Could, could <laughs> I, I could understand that. And I go, but you know what? I go, this isn't the first time we've met. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, Hey, you remember that that kid who used to live next to you with the beard? And he goes, yeah, with the dog and the girlfriend. I go, well, the girlfriend's now his wife. The dog is still alive, and that's my cousin. He goes, oh, my God, we cracked a beer on my deck last last fall. I'm like, absolutely. We became fast friends. We be, he called me the kid. And we'd always show up at the community meetings. He'd be like, the kid here, he said he's, he, he's going to do this, and he will absolutely charge you. That was a project where we, and I kind of get flack for it, we ended up putting in 20% affordable in a market where we actually were fully entitled. We didn't have to do any. It was a really cool opportunity, but it is every deal. Just It begins like that in a back room and you know you got some zoning attorney who's facilitating this or you're just making the conversation. So, you, so Boston's top five hardest? I would absolutely say Boston is, Boston can be a lot harder if you don't kind of follow through. But yeah, I'd say between California and Boston, it's it's difficult. And then Chicago fits in there somewhere. I don't know where. What's the easiest? Um, New York City. Of the markets that we're in, and I can't speak to markets we're not in, I would say that Portland is oftentimes the most easy just because they, they've master zoned everything. In many ways, Seattle, same way. So you know the zoning is already Does in that place. take some of the profit out if it's the process is very clear and everyone knows what can be developed with that site? It takes the profit out because... And that's why I said there's 19,000 units under development yeah. today. And I cannot begin to tell you where those people are working or what the deal is. Although there is a lot to be said about the proximity to Seattle and to San Francisco. So there's a lot of people who do like I do, get on a plane. But yeah, no, it, I mean, that's allowed for a lot of development to happen. It's allowed for now the city to pull back and say, Shh, we got to do something about this. And so they just enacted a inclusionary zoning comp- policy. They just, uh, they, in fact, they just passed the law for rent control. Mm, yeah, I remember reading about that. Yep. Which Talking. candidly, candidly, it's a cap at like 9%. So unless you're looking like right. class B, class C stuff and B at best, I mean, you could get even close to five. So Portland's very easy to get things done. 
And then from there, it's just every other city has a little extra layer of politics where you get to Boston and you just have a lot of process and a lot of politics and a very difficult time finding sites and a lot of community interaction. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. And that's why we like it. That's why we picked Boston as a place to go. So I guess that gives you a point, Mark, you know, to our earlier debate about does the predictive zoning take some money off the table? It sounds like it does. So, I, I you know, we got to give you that I, one. I didn't want to <laughs> gloat my victory. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'll give but you the balance back there. for Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Zero for Ray. That's okay. That's a story of my life. Hey, Matt, going back to the rents, uh, you were mentioning the rents and prices. What's your take on kind of rents around this area? You know, do you see rentals kind of, there's a lot of luxury rentals. We've talked about that in prior discussions. Where do you see rentals in general? Are we at a kind of an oversupply there? No, I don't think we are. We haven't delivered that many units. I think the demand is, is, is extreme. I think diversity, I think the big thing is, is diversity in economics is a big deal. And so in order to meet the city's goals, in order to meet that, was it 69,000? Was it 69,000? Something like that. Yeah, I mean, in order to meet the, the massive number of, devel- of, of deliveries that need to happen, Diversity in housing stock is going to be the biggest thing. And finding alternatives, whether it's through construction, through process, around getting middle-income housing. You know, one of the statistics Sheila Dillon and her crew provided, it was like, I think it was somewhere in like 79.8% of existing housing stock. The, the, the three families, four families, students within the downtown core, which is, which is to say that you have a huge gap in that kind of range of affordability. And so looking at middle-income housing, it's a thing that's been thrown around every which way to Sunday. That's the thing I want to accomplish and I want to unlock because when it's done, yeah, we're going to keep building and we're going to keep building good product. We're going to build stuff that meets the needs of, of, of a greater range of Bostonians. Got how, it. How, yeah, I know. But it, it's hard. It's, it's, oh, it's, yeah, hard it's hard as developers because we try to underwrite those, we try to underwrite those deals all the time and of course. because of the cost of acquisition, because of the cost of construction, it's just financially, it's very difficult. But it's also the cost sense. of capital too. I mean, in all the money, I'm not talking us, I'm talking like all the money that's been raised and put into multifamily development across the country, there is a massive part of this cohort who just simply can't afford to live in the city. And some don't want to, and I get that. I don't. I mean, I don't get it, but I get it. <laughs> but there's a certain point where, where like, if we can unlock that and we can unlock it with capital that's saying, look, you basically have an infinite pool of people, then you'll Gen Z will come right behind it with the same set of circumstances, an infinite pool of people. You're going to have fast lease at times, really sticky tenants. And, you, and, and in Boston where the minimum, I mean, really the minimum you need to make to live in a building, unless you're getting like the one rando weird unit that's in the building, you got to make $150,000. Me make one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and if you don't make that, you can't live in any of the buildings that are being built. And guess what? Not everybody makes one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, and that's why areas like here in yeah. Dorchester and Eastie, those that's why those areas have exploded because the people that can't afford to live in the core are getting pushed out. And you know, it's good for people that have purchased in those areas, but you know. Although those people that are moving in, there are people there that are then getting displaced even further out. So of it's course, kind yeah, of, a, it just it's, just a, it's just, it's just, it yeah. is, it is, it's a systemic thing. And so when if only they, we got those Amazon jobs, then we have all those hundred thousand plus people. <laughs> but then we still have people, we still have the bartender who works down the street that you, you need to keep. Yeah, no, I, I was being work. facetious. I know, I, I get to the bartender. Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed it's not oh, the you want another beer? Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't bode well. My mother better not listen to this one. But uh, no, I mean, I do I think we've oversupplied? No, I think that we need to diversify. Yes, Boston will develop in. We'll absolutely develop in. We want to be doing development deals here because we believe long-term, this, is a, this has every fundamental. Do you think long-term Boston will become more like a New York where it's, it's very, very expensive to live in kind of the core and that quote-unquote working class will be forced out into the... Perimeter. I, I think we we're already seeing that. New York things are very, very expensive, but there is at least some semblance of diversity in housing stock. There is a massive pool of existing buildings. Uh, Mark and I uh, work with a nonprofit here called NOAA, 
and one of the things we try to that the organization tries to promote is is buying up existing housing stock to preserve uh, social equity, preserve rents at a certain certain rate. And I think that that's look. This is, we're gonna there's gonna be organizations like that that need to exist. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's just hard to build up here. It's I mean, just hard yeah, to build we, up we here. hit on this earlier, but yes, you go to the Back Bay or the South End, the most desirable neighborhoods. 95% of that land, you're not going to build on. Right. You cannot touch those structures. Mark brought up like the number of things that fit within existing zoning. Like five, he said 5% or something like that. I would want, I'd be curious to know the number of like really dense sites that you could actually do anything. I mean, there's not that much land. D'Artagnan said that in his career here, he's done uh, two, two. two. Yeah. As of right projects, they're both probably for... I think I know. I, I thought it was three because we had one, but you know, um, <laughs> it's okay. But it right. didn't get built. <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, um, oh, then that would be four. We did get one that's getting built. Uh, I digress. Let's talk quickly on a fun subject. We said that the rental market is not oversupplied, but nonetheless, there seems to be something of an arms race race amongst uh, landlords to supply amenities. What are you seeing now? Oh, Anything Lord. like? I've heard recently that novelties are actually more important than amenities. And so a rope swing, I heard as an example, or a golf simulator. You're, you're, you're describing you Instagram. the Insta- Instagramification of the real estate world. This is a thing. It, it is a thing. That said, IG moments are not something to slough off. Like Troy. So we have this deck where, the, I mean, because the views out of there, if you ever get a chance to go to the rooftop there, the views are insane. I mean, the views are ridiculous. The views are from the back are ridiculous. The views in front are ridiculous. Well, of course, who comes along but the bachelorette, Becca, and she takes a photo on top of that thing, and everybody and their mom wants to take a photo, and they, of course, <laughs> I, I've never, no, I mean, maybe, maybe watched that season. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I personally prefer The Bachelor. Didn't they just uh, record, they just came through they and came, recorded they just something, came right? Through. Absolutely. So yeah, so those, those IG it's moments are big. Um, but I would say this, for us, like, Chicago's notorious for the one-off, like the, the 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 amenity that you throw in there because it's like, oh, this is going to be super cool on the tour. But then you're like, that doesn't really resonate with like my 24-7 life. What's the most ridiculous thing you've put in a building? Most ridiculous thing I put in a building? And like as amenities-wise. I would argue that we've not really done too many ridiculous things. One of the most exciting things we did I mean, it kind of went back to the sustainability thing. So there, there's a project we did in Chicago, and it's right in the heart of this neighborhood called the West Loop. And the West Loop is like, go down Randolph, and it is every, like, I think Stephanie Izard, one of the Iron Chefs, has three restaurants there. Some of the best food you will ever eat. Well, we wanted food to be a big thing. So we ended up putting in, I think it's like a ten or 12,000 square foot crop producing farm on top of the building, of which 3,000 people can interact with and we and we do resident programming where people actually get into it they become part of the story of sustainability and it becomes this big thing now i think my my approach to amenities is this if it's not providing tangible value to the person's experience during their lease there is no point in doing it because the, and and really and truly these amenities should be used as as place as a place to facilitate human connection because i can say this Let's say I build a thousand crazy bells and whistles into a building. Then Mark comes along and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna take a couple of those. I'm gonna add a few more here. I'm doing a thousand fifty. In theory, if we were all to look at buildings like that, you would say Mark's building is better than mine. However, what he can't build is the relationship between me and Unit Two O Two and the neighbor who I've become. So how do you best do that friends. though? Because a lot of people subscribe to good fences make good neighbors. Of course. And you seem to pride yourself in um, creating and fostering a, a community within your buildings. I think I can't. I can't tell you exactly. Like I can't pinpoint one. It's like marketing, right? You can't pinpoint or, or you can't pinpoint one reason why something is successful. But I would say things that I have observed, and I've lived in almost every building we built in the last ten years, um, and I've gotten to be part of that community, which is awesome. Like that's a like you don't get you don't get better feedback than being there, experiencing it with the people who are actually there to you know who are paying for it. Do they know you built it or had a hand in it? They do. In fact, there was a woman at three fifteen and a. Her name was Gertrude, who did not know how to use the Nest thermostat, and I went down and programmed it for her because she knew that 
I would probably know oh how to do it. Exactly. So <laughs> now you're putting amazing. yourself out there. That's yeah. okay, though. That's okay. <laughs> That's dangerous. I'd, <laughs> hey, I'd rather have you know that we're going to be there, like to know who we are so that you can ask questions and be, you know, really interact with somebody who's going to get real. We get real feedback. So it's all about utilitarianism, basically. You want you want it to be something that hundred percent can actually be utilized. It's not just some fancy thing that's going to a flash in the pan that's just going to go away. Absolutely, in a year. and I think you know part of that is programming, and we've been very fortunate to partner with great management partners here who have who help facilitate our values through the management of the building. And secondly, even in just basic design, like Troy, Troy is two buildings connected by a, a piece of of real estate that that makes the two kind of come together. Well, we have amenities on one, we have amenities on the other, and, and none of them kind of dovetail except for two killer roof decks. You are incentivized to cross-pollinate. And by virtue of that, if that, in fact, if anything, if you were to look at the best amenity in that building, it's between the dog run and the pool, it's the hallway. Because as I'm walking down that hallway, I'm forced to look eye to eye with somebody else in that building. The lobbies. Lobbies are never should be overlooked. Lobbies can be some of your greatest amenities because everyone has to go through there. Give a reason for someone to just stop and actually take that take that space over. That space that really usually feels like a gateway to the building. Like like there's the concierge is there to say, "Sir, why are you here? We don't we what what do you need? How can I you know you know you're not supposed to be here or you are supposed to be here? no make that open make it open and facilitatory." I, lived in hotels for so long that you like y- you recognize in those that those great that's a gray space that that can be populated and it's a place where people actually are forced to conquer they're forced to see each other eye to eye so little things it's, a, it's very <laughs> subtle very subtle subtle design changes nice are nice you concerned that people hearing this are going to target your buildings to use as public restrooms now uh, <laughs> they they already do. It's, just it's okay. It's just okay. kidding. All right, that's a good segue into yeah. underrated. <laughs> we, I feel like we could talk for hours with you, Matt. You're, yeah. you're, no, you are so animated, and, so fun. This is fun. We, this should, is, we have to do a follow up. We so. will have to do a follow up because this is this is an overload of information. We're already at this might be the longest podcast <laughs> we've ever ever recorded so far. But that's a good thing. Uh, look, I'm an Irish boy. I tell a lot of stories, and I, and I never never stop talking. So. Yeah, so, so let's Matt, do it. Are you familiar with overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? I can generally sense and grasp the concept here. We'll throw some terms, some concepts, and we're we're looking for your quick take on these on these uh, ideas. So I'll start with off street parking. Off street parking, appropriately rated? Really, I would have I would have guessed that you would go with overrated, and that uh, I I would it, I wouldn't and I wouldn't. don't want to encourage cars. I agree with you, and yet we have a higher. I mean, we're like we're like a point two seven at Troy, and we still had stalls there. East Boston, we're like at a point six because the neighbors were very concerned about people parking on the street, and we've got a demand out the door. I'd, I would say that parking, if anything, it's it is a it is one of those like total. I want to say it's a crapshoot, but it fuck it really is a little bit of a crapshoot. You never quite know what the right sauce is. So that's it's very a, neighborhood specific. It so, is very so at the Eddie you have six tenths of a space for every unit. Yep. Is that and a quarter of a space at the so very low and demand is far exceeding the supply. It is. It is. And in fact, there huh. if you want to get it, if you want to get a look at something pretty cool, we have a. It's all mechanized, owner operated matrix parking. I've seen pretty, this at the yeah. Eddie. It's, it's like it's a pretty, Tetris it's system. Pretty incredible. When it's, you drive it's your awesome. car, in, yeah, 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 super cool. How about, um, we talked a lot about those larger buildings, so how about concierges? Again, I would say for the high-end luxury product is absolutely appropriately rated uh, a must-do. That is a baseline expectation. We go into affordability, under it is completely overrated. Oh, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> You're up, Dan. Uh, how about cap rates? Over, they're definitely not overrated. Anything there, there, there. Well, you you talked to, you threw out IRR way more than mm. cap rates during these. Well, this because discussion, I so. would say they're appropriately rated, given the fact that stability in the cap rate market here in Boston is ridiculous. In fact, if anything, like wait five seconds and it goes down. I don't I mean it's not it's not going to compress forever, but like Troy was like a three seven, I think, or something. That was something ridiculous. I I would take overrated on cap rates on account that cap rates ignore cost of capital. It's it's yeah. a poor metric that we all use too often. I much prefer IRR cash on cash. All right, a couple more here, quick. Big Sky Montana. 
Big Sky Montana. Is there uh, a background to that question? Or <laughs> no, I think I think he I think he think I think he thought I went to Big Sky. I was in Sun Valley, oh, but I oh. would say I would say Big Sky Montana and Sun Valley underrated by comparison to other mountains. Maybe you're a little biased on this one, but obviously lead or sustainable uh, construction underrated entirely. Kind of kind of thought that was yeah coming. yeah well yeah there you go the hippie <laughs> from Oregon tiled backsplashes. Tiled backsplashes, I would say, are appropriately rated, <laughs> underrated. I don't know. I just didn't I mean, see them at the Troy, so, so I wanted random. to ask you. No, well, because it was ah. a, it was it wasn't tile; it was a single piece of uh, oh, quartz. Yes, did okay. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Full full height backsplashes. So back full height backsplashes. One hundred percent. I would argue are those are underrated. They need to be full height. Okay, Dan, so you nice like the job. four inch turn up. Nah, I'm not doing That's, that. Right, no, man, I like it. We just did one dance. You did the full piece. Uh, it was porcelain, but Neil still left. very nice. Oh, yeah. There's Excellent. so many great products out now in terms of, especially with porcelain. The porcelain world is just crazy. Yeah. Love how excited like Matt is about it's everything. I look, hey, look, porcelain, baby. Passion. So, so here's another one. Um, we have on the list here club rooms, but why don't we just call them more of like specialty rooms, movie room, club room, Ooh, specific room. So overrated. <laughs> the movie room. So the movie room, put it this way. We did one, and I will never do one again. And you walk in, because nine times out of ten, you walk in f- facing the audience. Have you ever walked in and see the glow on somebody's, like the glow of the TV on someone's face? And like they, you show up late to the movie after the previews yeah, are over like, and like it's, everyone hates that, you. Also, you don't know what they're watching. You could be walking into something totally uh, inappropriate. Weird. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of like, whoa, sorry, I'm going to back out here uh, later. Golf simulators, I mean, it'd be fun, but I don't think we need it. Overrated, okay. Well, that's been today's edition of <laughs> Underrated, <laughs> Overrated, or Appropriately Rated. So I guess that wraps up the, uh, are we wrapping up here? We're going to wrap it I up? I think that's it, Matt. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, this has thank been you. an incredible wealth of knowledge. Hey, I, uh, I hope to God it wasn't BS. Matt, <laughs> if people want to get a hold of you and uh, they're not at JJ Foley's, oh, yeah. what, how should they do uh, email is probably best. It's matt.edlin at girding, G-E-R-D-I-N-G, edlin, E-D-L-E-N.com. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening, for rating, reviewing, sharing. Absolutely. And Matt, we'll definitely have to have you back on next time Absolutely. you're out hey, here. congratulations, guys. This is, yeah, from being an avid listener now, you guys are doing <laughs> some amazing stuff and really, really great information. So thank you all. Appreciate Cheers. it. Thanks, Matt. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye.